Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, the good news is that the Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Station is going to be shut down by the end of 2014. But how good is that news? Two interviews this week address that issue. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, who has 40 years of nuclear power engineering experience and is a former nuclear industry senior vice president, provides clarity on what this closure means radiologically, economically, and within the context of the national nuclear agenda. Then an on-the-ground report from Hattie Nessel, who lives about 20 miles from the Vermont Yankee nuclear reactor and works with a women's affinity group whose members have now been arrested 35 times as a result of their protests to shut Vermont Yankee down. Hear what these two remarkable individuals have to say. Plus, stay tuned for our weekly radiation protection tip, numbnuts of the week, and more. It will all be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Wednesday, August 28, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. All eyes remain on Japan this week, as highly radioactive water from the wrecked remains of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant continue to leak into the Pacific Ocean and the groundwater with no end in sight. The Japanese Nuclear Regulatory Authority, or NRA, said the increasing series of radioactive water leaks from Fukushima is approaching a worst-case scenario. Last week, 300 tons of highly radioactive water leaked from a single tank, and TEPCO has warned that there may be hundreds more tanks like that one on the site. After 27 months of TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, claiming that they had the situation under control and resisting outside efforts to help, Three weeks ago, the company admitted that the leaks were beyond their ability to control. Now, NRA Chair Shunihi Tanaka has said, We cannot waste even a minute. Would that they had said that 27 months ago. Japan's NRA has called the nuclear facility a house of horrors. In a report, CNN host Aaron Burnett said of the NRA, They are not prone to hyperbole. It sounds incredibly frightening. Nuclear Hot Seat would agree. According to Michael Schneider, an independent consultant who has advised the French and German governments on nuclear issues, the spent fuel rods contain far more radioactive cesium than was admitted during the explosion at Chernobyl. There is absolutely no guarantee that there isn't a crack in the walls of the spent fuel pools. If salt water gets in, the steel bars would be corroded. It would basically explode the walls, and you cannot see that because you can't get close enough to the pools. That's because of the intense levels of radiation there, which make it dangerous for human beings to be exposed even for a brief period of time. Professor Jota Kanda of the Tokyo University of Marine Science and Technology has estimated that the radioactive leakage from Fukushima Daiichi is at 156 quadrillion becquerels of cesium-137 twice the amount that was released at Chernobyl. Meanwhile, Toro Ebisawa, an expert reactor engineer, estimated the amount of radioactivity leaked at 276 quadrillion becquerels of cesium-137, akin to 2.5 to 3.3 times the total amount leaked at Chernobyl. But hey, when you're talking about radiation at levels like these, what's a few quadrillion becquerels one way or another? It's all really bad, and Fukushima is already worse than Chernobyl. Pro-nuclear Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who has staked his country's economic recovery on selling nuclear technology to the world, has said the government will intervene and staunch the outflow of tainted water, but neglected to offer specifics as to how this would be accomplished. Japan's Minister of Trade and Industry, Toshimitsu Motegi, told the British Daily Telegraph, the urgency of the situation is very high. From here on, The government will take charge. Oh yeah, that makes us feel much better. Suggestions for solving the problem of the radioactive leaks into the ocean and further into the groundwater continue to flow in. Following TEPCO's decision to seek outside help, 
Russia has again offered to step in to help Japan clean up its ravaged former nuclear power station. Vladimir Asimov, first deputy director general of Rosenergoatom, the state-owned Russian nuclear facility, said, It was clear for a long time that TEPCO was not adequately coping with the situation. The idea of pumping water for cooling was never going to be anything but a machine for generating radioactive water. In our globalized nuclear industry, we don't have national accidents. They are all international. The World Nuclear Industry Status Report for 2013 states that the Japanese government has come up with a radically new engineering plan, their words, to cope with the groundwater problems. They plan to freeze the groundwater to create an artificial tundra. The suggestion was proposed by construction giant Kajima Company, which would, of course, be in line to land the contract. Kajima states that this untried technology would have to run for more than 10 years and runs the risk of reversing the water flow, making highly radioactive water seep out from the reactor buildings into the aquifer. TEPCO is considering the proposal, but does not seem as enthusiastic about it as the government does. TEPCO is now stationing its nuclear power chief near the Fukushima site to oversee the decommissioning process, particularly the handling of radioactive water. Vice President Zengo Aizawa will take direct command of this massive project. In a news conference on Wednesday, August 21st, Ayazawa apologized for TEPCO's continuing to cause so much trouble. He neglected to mention that the trouble is the radiological release that threatens the future of life on Earth. Tsunehiko Kawamoto of Green Cross Japan, an environmental group working to phase out all nuclear power in the country, says the staggering price of a cleanup with no end in sight along with the loss of farmlands, property, and jobs, should act as a wake-up call to those who have taken official assurances at face value. Tsuyoshi Yoshihara, president of the Jan'an Shink'an Bank, told a crowd at a symposium on Fukushima, Today, nuclear power provides just 2% of Japan's electricity, down from 30% at full capacity pre-Fukushima. He said that an honest analysis must take into account the long-term costs of Fukushima, which continue to multiply. Addressing the notion that the country's economy will fail without nuclear energy, he stated, This is a kind of mythology. It must be defeated before we defeat ourselves. Former Japanese Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi has come out for the abandonment of nuclear power, saying of the radioactive waste, There's no place to put this stuff in Japan, so zero nuclear power is the only option. He joins former Prime Minister Naoto Kan in changing his stance from pro to against nuclear. We will have a thorough and level-headed interpretation of the information out of Japan, in addition to specifics on Vermont Yankee from Arnie Gunderson during our first interview segment. Meanwhile, in Fukushima Prefecture, Six more young people who were minors during the nuclear crisis of March 2011 have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer. This brings to 44 the total number of children who were diagnosed or are suspected to have that form of cancer, one of the first to show up after exposure to radiation. But still, prefectural officials said it was highly unlikely that there is any link to the March 2011 nuclear meltdown at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. No word as to what they might think is an alternate cause of the cancers. Prefectural officials did explain that the thyroid cancer develops after years of exposure to radiation, so these children probably developed the tumors or lumps before March 2011. They say this with no proof. They cited cases in the Chernobyl disaster of 1986, where thyroid cancer cases started coming up four to five years after the event. But they did not mention that Russia did not start testing for thyroid cancer until four to five years after Chernobyl, which is why there were no earlier statistics. Fukushima residents have said that they are not satisfied with the way the prefectural government has interpreted the effects of radiation exposure. They question the accuracy of the thyroid testing and criticize the way the government has released information. 
The Japanese government is still in the process of conducting tests on 360,000 young people who were 18 years old or less at the time of the disaster. These medical checks will continue for the rest of their lives, as will, undoubtedly, the government denials. Masao Yoshida was a genuine hero to Japan and the world. He was plant chief of TEPCO's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. On March 11, 2011, Yoshida ordered the evacuation of thousands of non-essential personnel after the biggest earthquake in Japan's recorded history hit the area. He made more staff leave as the tsunami that followed knocked out power, causing meltdowns at three reactors and a surge in radiation. Yoshida died on, 12, on July 9th the day after of the esophageal cancer. Yoshida ignored an order from TEPCO headquarters old. to stop pumping seawater into the reactor to try to cool it because of concerns that ocean water would corrode the equipment. TEPCO said it would penalize Yoshida, but then backed off after then-Prime Minister Naoto Kan defended him. He stayed at the facility, heading the disaster response for almost nine months. Yoshida died on July 9th of esophageal cancer at age 58. At a memorial service last week, prime ministers, family members, and colleagues joined in paying final tribute to the man who led the Fukushima 50. Author Ryusho Kadoda, who interviewed Yoshida and other members of the Fukushima 50 for his book, The Man Who Stared Down Death, said, If Yoshida hadn't been plant manager... Tokyo would be in no man's land right now. Despite his bravery, despite the nature of the cancer that killed him, TEPCO denies that there was any connection between his death and the catastrophic radiation that he experienced. Here in the United States, on Tuesday, August 27, Energy Corporation announced that the Vermont Yankee nuclear power station will shut down by the end of 2014. The timing of the shutdown is tied to the end of the plant's current fuel cycle. Vermont has battled with Entergy over Vermont Yankee since 2010, when the Vermont Senate voted against a measure that would have authorized a state board to grant Vermont Yankee a permit to operate for an additional 20 years. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission granted the license extension, and two weeks ago, a federal district court ruled that the state of Vermont had no power to make decisions on a federally regulated nuclear facility. This is part of the information that will be addressed by Arne Gunderson during our interview segment. The decision to close Vermont Yankee was based, according to Entergy, on a number of financial factors, including low wholesale energy prices, high costs, and what the company called a flawed market design that artificially deflates energy prices. Whatever. No comment was made by them on the bulldog anti-nuclear movement that had senior citizens chaining themselves to the gates of the plant, blocking traffic, and getting arrested every month. You'll hear more about that shortly. And now it's time for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission Doc Report. That's right, lots of problems that the NRC has been facing. The Salem Unit 1 nuclear reactor in New Jersey was shut down on Thursday, August 22nd, after slightly radioactive water, this according to the NRC, was discovered leaking at a rate of four gallons a minute. If you think that's not a lot, pour four gallons of milk on your floor every minute for a mm, couple of hours. See what that does to your sense of containment in your kitchen. An initial investigation has determined the leak as coming from packing on a pressurized spray valve used in the reactor coolant system. The valve was last replaced during a refueling outage that began in April of this year. Didn't last very long. The Beaver Valley nuclear power plant, 35 miles from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, may have failed part of an April federal safety drill in which mock intruders attacked the plant. This according to federal regulators and the plant owners. In the force-on-force -force test, in which plant security and staged saboteurs battled with laser guns and other simulated weapons, the mock bad guys got through. A spokesmodel for First Energy, Pennsylvania's largest electricity provider, declined to detail the issue. But David Lockbaum, 
director of the Nuclear Safety Project at the Union of Concerned Scientists, did not mince words. He said, The poor showing is embarrassing to the company. But had these vulnerabilities been found by real bad guys, the poor showing would have graver implications. The Pilgrim nuclear reactor in Plymouth, Massachusetts, has been having problems as well. What is it now, Pilgrim? The reactor shut down suddenly on Thursday, August 22nd. Troubleshooting indicated a problem with the electrical power for the system that monitors the flow of water. Well, cool off, Pilgrim. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is going to be sitting in judgment of the Fort Calhoun nuclear power plant. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission hasn't decided whether to allow the plant to restart. It sits on the Missouri River, 20 miles north of Omaha. In 2011, the reactor was shut down following an electrical fire. Shortly thereafter, the flooding of the Missouri River marooned the plant, turning it into an island protected only by an 8-foot inflatable berm, which at one point was dinged by a backhoe and deflated, causing flooding. The restart of Fort Calhoun is vigorously opposed by local activists, one of whom was featured on Nuclear Hot Seat number 108, and we invite you to listen. And that's this week's Nuclear Regulatory Commission Doc Report. Because when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is in charge of safety, the only safe thing to do is Doc! What to do with the nuclear waste? Well, the Mississippi Energy Institute is pushing for more exploration of storing and reprocessing used nuclear fuel in the state. At the same time, one of its congressmen is coming out against it. Leaders of the Institute, which promotes energy development, pitched ideas on Monday to the State Senate Economic Development Committee. Jason Dean, who works for a unit of the Butler Snow Law Firm and represents pro-nuclear forces, said, We see fuel rods no longer as a waste product, but as a commodity. Dude, get your eyes examined. U.S. Representative Stephen Palazzo a Republican from Biloxi said, Whatever plans are brewing for a possible nuclear waste facility, I think now is the time to send a clear message. No nuclear waste in Mississippi. Not now. Not ever. Not bad. Now a quick look at the international news. Japan has still not responded to South Korea's request for radiation data. On August 14th, Officials from South Korea formally requested their Japanese counterparts provide them with details of the situation at Fukushima Daiichi. Specifically, officials transmitted some 20 questions, which requested information related to the amount of leaked radioactive water, radiation levels, results of radiation measurements, and planned response measures. On Saturday, August 24, they submitted another request for Japan to supply the data. As of Tuesday, the 27th, South Korean officials acknowledged that they had received none of the information requested. The Japanese government claimed it is difficult to prepare the technical data requested quickly. That's because they don't know, and if they do know, they really don't want anybody else to know. An article out of New Zealand, which is a nuclear-free country, states that nations across the Pacific are fearing that Fukushima Daiichi will impact their fisheries and well-being. The crisis is being compared to Chernobyl, but Chernobyl was not on the ocean and is not contaminating the water, the fish, and everything it touches. Elizabeth Grossman, a scientist from Yale University, says that the signs are showing that nuclear material is already moving up the food chain. She said, I would have thought that there should have been some consultation with neighboring countries before Japan unilaterally decided that they would dump all of this waste into the ocean rather than store it on land. It feels to me like they are exporting an environmental problem to the Pacific Ocean, which no one should have the right to do. A Canadian university scientist has added his voice to the growing outcry to have seafood tested for Fukushima contamination. Nicholas Gontner, an ecotoxicologist affiliated with Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, said, There are simply not enough measurements being done in water and biota on this side of the Pacific Ocean. 
continuous input of radioactivity into water for two years and counting will lead to ample opportunity for reconcentrating radiation up the food chain. Personally, Gartner doubts whether studies will find dangerous levels of radiation in fish and said he has no hesitation in eating fish from the Pacific. Nuclear Hot Seat adds, You might want to consider waiting until you get the results of those tests. And here is the Nuclear Hot Seat Numbnuts of the Week. And this week... It's evil numbnuts. The International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the largest, most powerful atomic energy booster organization in the world, is ignoring the Fukushima Daiichi disaster to boast that, quote, considerable progress, end quote, has been made globally in the past two years to strengthen nuclear safety. The IAEA has said it believes that global use of nuclear energy could increase by as much as 100% by 2030, thanks to growth in Asia, including China and India. The UN agency's report said progress has been made worldwide in key areas that include emergency preparedness, assessment of safety vulnerabilities of nuclear plants, and the protection of people and the environment from radiation. But Nuclear Hot Seat would like to remind the IAEA that you can have 40 good years and one bad day and it will undo everything that you claim is safe about nuclear. Until you get Fukushima under control and all the radiation cleaned up, you'll have made no global progress in nuclear safety. And to claim it is just despicable. And that is this week's Numbnuts of the Week. Time for the interviews. And this week, the inspiration is Vermont Yankee. Arnie Gunderson has 40 years of nuclear power engineering experience. He holds a nuclear safety patent, was a licensed reactor operator, and is a former nuclear industry senior vice president. During his nuclear power industry career, Arnie also managed and coordinated projects at 70, 70 nuclear power plants in the U.S., He currently heads Fairwinds Energy Education, which has graciously granted Nuclear Hot Seat permission to present their most recent podcast here. Arnie is interviewed by Nathaniel White Joyal. Energy has decided to close and decommission Vermont Yankee, and this is the fifth nuclear unit to be shut down this year. Arnie, what does this mean? Well, you know, I said when the San Onofre unit shut down that this was a seismic event for the nuclear industry. And this is the next ripple in that in that earthquake. Um, th- these five units were San Onofre, Crystal River Plant, the Kiwani Plant, and now Vermont Yankee. All of them were shut down because economically it made no sense to continue to run the nuclear units. You know, these things are getting old, and they break, and they, they have enormous staffs. The staff on a nuclear unit is uh, around 650 for Vermont Yankee, higher for San Onofre. To get the comparable power out of, out of another power plant, you could get about a, 100 people. So a nuclear plant is much more costly to operate. Sure. And wasn't the Vermont Yankee plant the same model as the Fukushima Daiichi? Yeah, the cost to make the modifications to make Vermont Yankee safe would have been well over 100 million bucks. On top of that, there was other modifications that needed to be made, and they also needed to spend $50 million on fuel. So rather than make a quarter of a billion dollar investment in the plant, they decided to pull the plug and um, um, shut the plant down at the end of this, this refueling cycle. It's still a ways off. It's still 14 months away in 2014. But the plan is now that they're going to walk away from a licensed nuclear power plant because it's just too expensive to run. Right. And so what's that going to mean? How's this going to happen? How are they going to decommission the plant? And what's it going to mean for public health? Yeah, all these five plants are facing that same question. What are we going to do to uh, safely decommission these plants? Um, and they're all in the same boat. They, they, they have to take the nuclear fuel out of the reactor, put it in the fuel pool. Now, Fukushima Daiichi shows you the fuel pools remain hot for three, four, five years, physically hot. 
after about five years, they can take the, the fuel and put it into dry cast storage. The dry cast of Fukushima Daiichi survived the earthquake and the tsunami just fine. So it's clearly the safe thing to do is to get it out of the fuel pool. But you can't. You're stuck with it there for five years. So whether it's San Onofre in California or Vermont Yankee or Kiwani or Crystal River, the nuclear fuel has got to sit for five years before it can go to the safer way of storing it, which is called dry cask. In the meantime, what they'll be doing is taking the water out of the systems in the plant and basically making sure that there's no new leaks to the environment. That doesn't mean that old leaks might have been undetected. That's already happened. But with the fuel out of the fuel pool and all of the liquid out of all the pipes, uh, it's not very likely there'll be new leaks to the environment. You were saying earlier that it's possible for unintended things to happen and for the radiation to get out through other means. Yeah, there's a problem. When you put a plant in what the NRC calls safe store and what, what we at Fairwinds call lazy store, it's um, an opportunity to walk away from the plant for 60 years, six zero years, long time. They're doing that out at Hanford at the reservation out there where they had uh, nuclear reactors from uh, the bomb program. And what happens is when you try to button up a power plant like that, rodents get into it, wasps get into it, the birds get into it. And you know now we're finding radioactive bird's nests, radioactive wasp nests, and radioactive rabbit droppings out in the field. So when you put a plant in a safe store mode, animals are going to get into that plant just like a house that's abandoned, and they're going to carry out the radiation. At Hanford, they can find the radioactive rabbit droppings from a helicopter at about a couple hundred feet high. That's how radioactive these things are. When they find the rabbit droppings, they send people out to kill the rabbit, And these guys are paid pretty well. They call it bunny money when they go out to to prevent these rabbits from getting out into the environment. So, yeah, putting a plant in a safe store doesn't necessarily keep the radiation inside it. Uh, Rodents and wasps and things like that can get in and carry that radioactivity out into the forest. So then the public health is definitely still at risk here. Yeah, the best thing to do for all five of these nuclear plants that are shut down this year is to quickly take them apart. You have to wait five years. There's no way you should do it faster. One, the fuel can't be moved. But two, from a radiation exposure standpoint, you don't want to irradiate employees needlessly. After five years, the plant's about as less radioactive as it's going to get for 300. So you may as well start on dismantling the plant at that point. Then what should happen is within another five years, it can be turned back into a field. So the process can take 10 years. The people at San Onofre would get their beach back. The people here in Vermont would get the, the land that's right along the Connecticut River back. It can be done quickly. There's no reason to wait 60 years, except money. Well, can we talk a little bit about examples of other decommissioned plants and how that's been either successful or has failed? Yeah, yeah, right here in New England, we've got two examples. One's a good example. Maine Yankee was shut down and within 10 years decommissioned within budget. And now it's just a, a field. On that field is all the high-level radioactive fuel because nobody has any place for that. But the remainder of the plant, you'd never know it's there. The, the bad example is also in New England down on the Connecticut River called Connecticut Yankee. They started to decommission the plant and found a leak under the plant that no one had noticed for 40 years that was putting radioactive strontium down into the, um, the water table. That added a billion dollars to the cost to clean up the plant. So what happened in Connecticut is that the Connecticut ratepayers all picked up a billion dollar bill. They spread it out in their electric bills over 10 years so that for 10 years, everybody's electric bill was inflated by $100 million a year to pay for it. The good example is Maine. The bad example is Connecticut. Both are Yankee units. Maine actually did a better job than required by the NRC. The NRC allows a, a site to be released if it's 25 millirem more radioactive than it had been before. Maine Yankee said, no, that's, that's not adequate for us. We want it to be 10 millirem. 
more radioactive than what it had been before. And while not in law, there's this term called greenfield, and that really comes from Maine Yankee. And clean site, a greenfield site, is something that's called 10 millirem above uh, standard. But if you let the Nuclear Regulatory Commission declare a site safe, it can easily be two and a half times higher than the Maine Yankee standard. If something were to happen at Vermont Yankee, like happened at Connecticut Yankee, who would be picking up the tab? Well, who would be picking up the radiation would be the people down the river, which Vermont Yankees, right on the edge of Vermont. So mainly it would be people in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Hampshire who would be picking up the radiation if it leaked into the Connecticut River. But who would be picking up the tab is Vermonters. The NRC has allowed the power plants to become what they call LLCs, Limited Liability Corporations, and Vermont Yankees, one of them. If they don't have enough money... They go bankrupt, and you can't get through that plant to get to the parent corporation. So for years, Vermont Yankees sent money up to Entergy, but after a bankruptcy, that gate closes, and Entergy doesn't have to send any money back to Vermont Yankee. So the people left holding the bag financially are Vermonters. The people left holding the radiation are people in you know, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut the downriver communities. Somebody else made all the money and we're the ones who are experiencing all the negative aspects. Yeah, you know, and, and we don't have any say in this. This is federal law. So it's not like uh, the, the people in Vermont can force Vermont Yankee to give more money into the decommissioning fund. The NRC would say, no, they're uh, adequately funded as far as we're concerned, and the state has no authority. I disagree with that, but uh, the, the way the law is written is that the, um, uh, the states have very little say over how quickly a nuclear plant can be dismantled. Well, and how much is it going to cost to decommission this plant? And how much money do they have in their decommission fund? Well, the NRC requires, for a plant like for my Yankee, about $560 million. That's what the NRC formula is. But it's such a simplistic formula. It's literally a paragraph of how to figure out the cost to decommission a plant. Vermont Yankees got $590 million set aside. So by the NRC's criteria, there's plenty of money. But in fact, it will cost about a billion. So the NRC formula is wrong, and yet the NRC isn't forcing these plants to put more money into the fund. Why is the NRC's formula so off? The General Accounting Office did a study on that, and the NRC has promised to reevaluate its formula in the next couple of years. But still, every nuclear plant that's been decommissioned has exceeded the amount that they had set aside for it. It's always come out of the ratepayers' hides. You know, the NRC is trying to make nuclear power plants cost competitive. And if they really demand it, that the decommissioning funds be adequately funded, that's just one more nail in the coffin on nuclear power. It's much easier to defer those costs 60 years on kids that aren't even born yet rather than admit that the nuclear plant costs more than what they're claiming. We've been seeing so much news about Fukushima, and like we mentioned earlier in this podcast, it's the same reactor model. With all this release of radiation, what can we be worried about here? Yeah, the Fukushima site's a mess. There's tanks on the site, more than 700 of them, some of which are leaking. Uh, What made the news last week was one tank in particular leaked a lot, But all of them are leaking, and that's really not the single biggest source of radioactive water that's leaking into the groundwater. The big problem is that the nuclear reactors themselves have cracked floors. The buildings in those reactor buildings have cracked floors, and groundwater is getting into those buildings and becoming contaminated and then leaking out. So in addition to what's in those tanks, the the physical plant itself is contaminating the groundwater as well. So what Tokyo Electric tried to do was to build a wall along the water. They injected basically a concrete kind of a compound and made the ground less porous. That's not a good idea. It was a poor idea. Because what happens is the mountain that's behind Fukushima continues to pour the water into the ground. Now it's got no place to go. So now the groundwater is rising and rising and rising and likely overtopping this wall, certainly going around it on the sides. 
So we've got radioactive water that can no longer be stopped from getting in the ocean. It's worse than that, though, because the radioactive water has made the site seismic response different. The buildings that were on dry land are now on mushy land, so that if there were to be another earthquake, the seismic response of these buildings, which was already marginal, is further compromised because the ground that they're now on is wet, soggy soil where before it had been firm. And while it is more unlikely that we would see uh, seismic activity around Vermont Yankee, if Vermont Yankee were to have an accident where a bunch of radioactive material were leaked, what would be the consequences that we would see? You know, that's a, a lesson from Fukushima that America and the world is not paying any attention to. Gordon Edwards and I talked about this in a podcast a couple of months ago. But if a plant, an inland plant, were to have the problems that Fukushima Daiichi had, you'd likely wipe out the watershed for 40 million people. You know, the Pacific's a big ocean, and and you get to spread that radiation out over a large body of water. If Fukushima were on a river, the Mississippi, or on the Great Lakes, or on the Danube, or or on the Rhine, or a major river on a continent, that river would be inaccessible to human use for generations, and the people rely on that water to drink. So the downstream cities would essentially become ghost towns because they couldn't rely on their river. So the consequences of a Fukushima accident on the Pacific are really bad. But should that accident have occurred on a river or the Great Lakes or, or, or an inland estuary, it would be much worse even than that. And policymakers aren't talking about that. It's not as though we're going to have a tsunami on the Connecticut River. Certainly, there are other threats to the power plant at Vermont Yankee. Yeah, you know, Vermont Yankee says that all the time. You're not going to get a tidal wave zooming up the river. You're not going to have an earthquake, so therefore, don't worry, be happy. But the root cause of the accident was the loss of off-site power. That happens all the time at nuclear plants. And the secondary cause was that the ultimate heat sink was destroyed. That happens as well. There's been places where the cooling systems for power plants have been ineffective. So when the power plant loses its power from off-site, it needs to rely on its diesels. The diesels have to be cooled. It could be a terrorist action or it could be a hurricane like Sandy almost did it down in New Jersey. There are numerous ways to cause a loss of off-site power and a loss of the ultimate heat sink. It doesn't have to be a serious earthquake and related tsunami. And I think that's a, the lesson of Fukushima that, that people should take away, is not that what the nuclear industry says. Well, it's a, a once-in-a-zillion a probability event of an earthquake that bad. It's not about the earthquake. It's never been about the earthquake. It's about loss of off-site power, happens all the time. The loss of the ultimate heat sink can happen all the time. Uh, there's a plant down in South Carolina called the Oconee plant, which is downstream of a huge hydroelectric dam. If the dam were to be sabotaged or if the dam were to fail, we'd have three nuclear plants in exactly the same situation that Fukushima Daiichi are in. So it doesn't matter. You don't need a tsunami to cause this, this kind of event. So over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of news surrounding nuclear issues. Let's take a moment to sum them up and then talk about how they're impacting public health and public safety. We've got 50 nuclear plants shut down in, uh, in Japan right now. Likely will stay shut down for a long time because the news from Daiichi is so bad that no one in Japan has the appetite to, to start those units back up, despite the fact that the government wants it to happen. And here in the States, we've had a a seismic ripple, five nuclear plants that are operating shut down, five others that were in the licensing process shut down. Nuclear power is backing up worldwide right now. That's an important seismic event in the nuclear industry, and people shouldn't forget that. And by the nuclear industry's position, don't worry, be happy, everything's going to be fine. For the people uh, in Japan and the people on the West Coast, there is a wedge of radioactivity working its way across the Pacific called a plume of cesium-137, strontium, and and other isotopes. The plume is about a year away from hitting the coast of the the Pacific Northwest. It's not over. It's not like it's going to hit and then go away. The nuclear plant is continuing to leak. 
That plume is 10 times more radioactive than the ocean was before. The cesium in the ocean uh, from bomb testing was the only source of radioactivity, and now it's 10 times that, and likely to grow, because the Daiichi site is going to continue to leak into the environment for years to come. So I think what, what we all should demand is, one, get rid of Tokyo Electric. They, they have no, no right, no capability to decommission that site. We need a first-rate engineering firm in there to do it. But the other thing people on the West Coast should demand is transparent analysis of the fish. There's no state organization that's sampling the fish, no government organization that's sampling the fish, and telling people what the numbers are. If the government's sampling it, they're not telling anybody. And I'm uncomfortable with that. I want to know what that number is, and I think as citizens, our government owes it to us to tell us how radioactive the fish are in the Pacific. We're not getting that right now. There's probably good science being done, but uh, citizens are not allowed to know what the government knows. That was the ever-articulate Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, interviewed by Nathaniel White-Joyal. For more of Arnie's informative podcast, you can go to fairwinds.com, spelled F as in Frank, A-I-R-E, winds.com. We'll also have a link up on our website. Our second interview is with one of my favorite activists in the country. Hattie Nessel lives about 20 miles from the Vermont Yankee nuclear reactor. She has worked with the Women's Affinity Group to shut the reactor for years. These women are mostly aged 65 to 94. They have chained themselves to the gates, stopped traffic in both directions, and been arrested 35 times at either the Vermont Yankee Reactor or at Entergy's Brattleboro headquarters. I spoke with Hattie shortly after the 2014 closure announcement of Vermont Yankee was announced. Hattie, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. First of all, give me a sense, was this, closure, this announcement of the closure, something that was expected? Was it anticipated in any way, or did this take you by surprise? Well, we have known that they have been failing for quite a long time, and it's been their last gasp. And a UBS banking firm did a study of nuclear power plants and said that Vermont Yankee was a failure, you know, in terms of sell, don't buy it. Stock went down 69% over the past year. Their assets have gone down hundreds of millions of dollars. They're laying off 30 people now, 10% of their workforce. They were suing the state uh, because the state wanted to shut them down when their license expired because they didn't have a license from the state to continue operating, and they sued the state. When the original uh, case came down, it cost them $4.6 million in legal fees. And then the state did appeal it, and the state lost the appeal, but they won one very small portion of it. They did not have to pay Entergy's $4.6 million in legal fees. That had to hurt the bottom line. And then there was another uh, lawsuit that they had 14 or 15 law firms representing them at. The NRC... Unfortunately, within about two weeks of Fukushima, we licensed four new nuclear power plants, including Vermont Yankee. And to me, what the NRC was saying to the industry was, we've got your back. Don't worry about what happened at Fukushima affecting nuclear power. We're going to relicense every single application that comes in here and we're going to be, you know, protect you from any lawsuits and whatever. And that's what they've done. It's a corporate mess that is backed by a regulatory agency that doesn't regulate for the safety of the people at all. It's for corporate profits. So right now, they're saying, Entergy is saying that they will shut down permanently at the end of 2014. Well, that's another year and a half away. And there's this same imminent danger that has been going on and getting more extreme every single day because the equipment is failing. When you say the equipment is failing, what examples do you have of recent instances? Okay, the most recent one was there were five episodes where monitors within the control room that are supposed to measure radiological releases 
went off. These monitors said there were radiological releases. Energy says there were no radiological releases. They said the alarms were malfunctioning, but the only way it came out to the public was not through the NRC, not through hearings that were going on at the time, but through a whistleblower. So that's what we have been up against all of these years, waiting for a whistleblower to let us know the plant's on fire and taking pictures, the cooling tower collapsed, and taking pictures and getting them out, and monitoring for tritium in the groundwater. It was millions of times more than they said it was, or that they're allowed. And the NRC never never finds them, never shuts them down until they find the leak or they figure out what's going on with the monitor, nothing. The other thing people need to know is that they are going to try and squeeze every piece of profit out of that place they can until they shut down. And they will compromise safety, whether it's the condenser that should have been replaced that they're not going to replace, or whether it's running the uh, hot water through the cooling towers, which costs them a million dollars a day. They're not going to do it. They're just going to continue dumping the hot water into the uh, Connecticut River. It's thermally hot water, but there are radiological releases into the river on a continuing basis. The fish in the river are all, they've been uh, analyzed, and they have cesium-137 in them, and they have strontium-90. Those fish are contaminated, and they're decimated by the thermally hot water, and they're radiologically hot, and they don't put up signs in the state because the state doesn't want to compromise tourism. People come to Vermont to fish. With your women's affinity group, you have been protesting now for how long? Since 2005, we started out doing several actions every year, and then when their license expired, we started moving into one action a month. So we've done about 35 actions. We've been arrested there as a group 35 times since 2005. And fill in the picture for those not familiar with you. What is the age range of the group? Mostly older women, 40s through 90s. The oldest woman in the group is Frances Crow, and she's 94. And we were just arrested there, Hiroshima Day, bringing together the issue of nuclear power and nuclear weapons, and she was absolutely there with us. What has it been like trying to get word out about the dangers of Vermont Yankee by using mainstream media? It's been very, very difficult. First of all, Vermont Yankee and all the nuclear, the whole Nuclear Energy Institute, which is a lobbying group, they pay people to write letters, op-eds, comments, and acting like scientists and activists that were green but now see the light for nuclear. They get a lot of stuff in. Uh, we have people like James Hansen from NASA advocating nuclear power. I don't know what, where his budget is coming from. It's questionable because I don't think he can be that dumb as to really believe it. You have 350.org doing a big splash against fossil fuels, so people think, well, no fossils, and we, we must need nuclear power. How are we going to keep the lights on? And in terms of Fukushima, very few people know about Fukushima and what's going on there. And it's catastrophic. It's catastrophic. This is a worldwide problem. There's not a single nuclear power plant operating that doesn't affect the entire planet. They've got to get that uranium out of a mine. They leave all that slurry around, uh, releasing radon, killing the wildlife, the birds, the marine life. They decimate the aquifers. It's a very difficult situation. What has it been like working with mainstream media trying to get this story out? It's like having invisible ink. They don't really get it. They don't understand there's only one side to this issue, and that is danger. Danger for, forever. It's like you can't smell it, see it, taste it, or feel it. So it's invisible. And the way they cover it is invisible ink. They don't really understand it, and they think they're not the expert. Somebody must be the expert. Somebody must be regulating this. It must be okay. But it isn't. And so they're not really well informed, and they're not politically understanding the corporate interests that command salaries of $27 million for their CEOs and that are willing to risk all of us. So it's a real lack in the media, even progressive independent media, 
have not sufficiently covered what's going on in Fukushima at all. I mean, James Hansen the other day said it was a tsunami that caused the accident at, at Fukushima. It was it started with the earthquake. The tsunami made it worse, but the earthquake pipes were already broken and workers were already right. running this, out of the plant. Yeah, this was on the New York Times website. James Hansen, with himself being interviewed, you know, giving his talk in segment after segment and giving all misinformation. And the media doesn't even know what questions to ask. It wasn't the tsunami. If you read anything, you had to know they had a complete total blackout 36 minutes before the tsunami hit. That's fact. It's not bias. So it's a very difficult situation dealing with the media because they don't really want to do their homework and they don't want to be negative. And it's very negative. What's next for the women's affinity group that has been so powerful and so effective up there in bringing attention to Vermont Yankee? Will you be continuing with your protests? Absolutely. I mean, we have always... Said, shut it down now. And the now is very important. I'm not dancing in the street because Vermont Yankee says it's closing in 2014, the end of 2014. We have a long way to go before that plant shuts down. And every day that it operates, we are in danger. And that's the bottom line of this. Yes, they should shut down but they should shut down now. So until it is shut down, and maybe after, depending on what they do about decommissioning, we will be there. The message is the same message. Shut it down now. That's not changing. As long as it's open, it's open. There's no reason to keep it open. state of Vermont doesn't even use the energy from it. And Massachusetts doesn't need it. We're going solar down here big time. We don't need it. That was Hattie Nussel. She has developed a PowerPoint presentation that she takes around the country. It focuses on the pitfalls and dangers of nuclear power as she advocates for a carbon-free, nuclear-free future. You can email her at Hattie Shalom, H-A-T-T-I-E-S-H-A-L-O-M at Verizon.net. We'll have a radiation protection tip in just a moment, but first... I want to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to keep bringing you the news you won't get anywhere else. The week's nuclear news, radiation protection tips, activist opportunities, numbnuts of the week, the NRC DOC report, and so much more. So if you'd like to help, go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down the homepage and click on the big red donate button. Whatever you can do to help, know that it is appreciated. The radiation protection tip this week is for world travelers and employers. Do you have business in Japan? Either you yourself, a branch of your company, a news bureau? Maybe you send executives or skilled personnel over there to supervise or consult. If so, you need to protect these people from Fukushima's radiation. There's a lot of disinformation coming from Japanese special interests, especially the government, that downplay radiation dangers and the possible long-term impact upon health. But anyone going over there would be well advised to learn about supplements, food safety, and detoxification protocols that will help them preserve not only their health, but their genetic future. Nuclear Hot Seat is currently working with nutritional experts to put together trainings, consultations, and webinars that will teach you how to protect yourself from the impact of even low-level radiation. To learn more, have your company's HR department, or you do it yourself, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Here's an activist shout-out. A reminder that on October 19, there will be a one-day symposium on decommissioning San Onofre and ongoing dangers of nuclear waste. It will be held in San Clemente, California, only three miles away from San Onofre, and will be live-streamed. So no matter where you are in the country or the world, you will be able to follow it. Speakers include Dr. Arjun Makajani and Dr. Marvin Reznikoff, both national experts on the key issues involved. And our good friend Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds, from whom you've just heard, he'll be there as well. There will be plenty of time for questions to panelists and group discussion. This is the first time a symposium such as this has been called, and it will focus on nuclear problems that start 
once the reactors are stopped. For more information, go to residenceorganizedforasafeenvironment.wordpress.com or a faster way, go to the website nuclearhotseat.com slash blog under Nuclear Hot Seat 115, that's this episode, and we'll have a link. I'm still looking for contacts to John Stewart because I am the nuclear pundit for The Daily Show. If you know someone who can help get John and me together for a schmooze, a bagel, a schmear, a bit of kibitzing, send your leads to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Here's today's final thought. To those of you I met at the Excellence in Journalism conference, welcome, and I am truly grateful that you cared enough to come here and to listen. The nuclear issue is complex, misunderstood, underreported, and overspun. It's ripe for any newsroom or reporter looking to cover a Pulitzer-level story. We who work to raise awareness of key nuclear issues count on you to help us get our stories out. A reminder that I have that free report available at NuclearHotSeat.com that walks you through the top five ways good reporters unknowingly can file a biased nuclear story because they didn't see through nuclear industry spin-speak. If Nuclear Hot Seat can help you with a story, there's contact information in that special report. Download the PDF, read it, and when you have a question or need to locate an expert, let us know. We'll be glad to help you. There are Pulitzers hidden in the nuclear story, more than enough to go around, local, national, international. I challenge the reporters and news directors I met to live up to the highest precepts of our profession and not only get the story, but get it right in all its complexity. Now, I don't pretend to be a straight reporter. I'm a pundit. I have a specific perspective that is non-negotiable. Could you tell? It's not that I'm biased. I'm your point of balance in a story that has been way biased in favor of nuclear for decades. And I'm only one, because there are other activists who stand against nuclear and would be excellent sources for your stories. So do yourselves a favor. Check us out. Learn more. Put us in your Talking Heads database. Call us. We're friendly. We don't bite. And we've got plenty of information to share. Remember, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears, it isn't a story. Help us be heard, because what we have to say could help you make all the difference in the future of this planet and life upon it. That's even better than a Pulitzer. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Wednesday, August 28, 2013. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from ENENews.com, Japan Times, NHK, Science Symposium at University of Tokyo, The Daily Telegraph, World.Time.com, The BBC, CNN, UPI, AP, 13Fox.com, NOLA.com, DigitalJournal.com, New Zealand Herald, Business Week, Japan Daily Press, Bloomberg.com, ABC News, Newsworks.org, TribLive.com, Pittsburgh Tribune Review, PilgrimCoalition.org, The Times Colonist, GlobalTimes.cn, Reuters, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds Energy Education, with gratitude to Nathaniel White Joyal for his help with the audio. Also, our friend Mochizuki and his blog, Fukushima Diary, and the fabulous, ever-present Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, with a shout-out to Ray Masalis for his ongoing analysis of Fukushima. I want to add my personal gratitude to all of those who supported me in going to excellence in journalism. I promise you, we will reap our rewards from our presence there, and I'm grateful to have had the opportunity. Bless you all. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. 115 episodes, including interviews with experts on every aspect of the nuclear story. So check out our archives, and be sure to friend me by my name or at either of the two Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook pages. Don't ask why I have two. Some web guy thought it was a good idea, and I went, what the heck, why not? Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use is allowed. 
you have my permission to reuse any and all of this material as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. Woohoo! And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.